Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, episode 68, I swear I'll never ride at night again. Tales of pushing the limits into the night, what happened, why you don't want to do it again, or will you? And on this show, who rides at night? You, you may be surprised at this. Then when they help you, who pays? When locals help you out of a breakdown situation, give you a meal or a place to stay, how do you show your gratitude without offending your host? And finally, we're going to end up with gaining space in that overpacked pannier, finding ways to make more space in an otherwise overstuffed box. All that and more coming up. This episode is supported by Fresh Tracks, facilitating adventurous conversations, freshtracks.co.uk. Now, before we get going today, I'm going to give a shout out to some people who have really helped the show incredibly this past month with support of $50 or more. Now, here we go. Emmaus Moto Tours, Dion Isaacson, James Lesser, Kevin Stratton, Jason Mulholland, James Wilday, Robert Bridges, Paul Sankowski, Robert Lamkin, Daniel Campbell, and Sidecar Dog Copper. Thank you very much. It's so great to have people appreciate what we're doing and show that by supporting the show. Don't leave it to others. We need your support too. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out like you just heard me do. Anything $10 or more gets you some Adventure Rider Radio stickers. And we would love your monthly support on our Patreon account. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. Now, just in case Raw is a new discovery for you, we have another show that we do every week, our flagship show called Adventure Rider Radio. Again, drop by the website, adventureriderradio.com or look anywhere you find podcasts for Adventure Rider Radio. Now, here we go with Adventure Rider Radio Raw for September 2021. Recorded live from the Canoe West Media Studio, deep in the boreal forests of North America, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by, well, many of my esteemed regular Overland co-hosts. We, we are missing Michelle Lampfair right now, but hopefully we're going to get her in. That's where I was going to go to begin with, but I'm, I'm going to zip over to the UK and uh, and say hello to Sam Manicom. Sam, hello. Hey, hi, Jim. Hi, everybody. But, all right, I'll say <laughs> something else then. <laughs> <laughs> so know, moving right along, Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are in Australia. Good morning, Shirley and Brian. Oh, good morning. Yes, it's lovely spring morning here, and we'll chat away seeing Sam so quiet today. Sam's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, good morning, everyone. It is a beautiful day here. Sun's uh, out, blue sky, ride time. Let's go. And we're out of lockdown. Oh, that, I was yes. just going to ask yes. that. So, wow, nice. Since we last spoke to you, we've been into lockdown, out of lockdown, back into lockdown, and now we're out again, but only in regional Victoria. So Brian no longer has to ride the motorbikes around the driveway. He can actually take them out onto the road. So he's a happy boy. Wow, very nice. He was riding around in the driveway. He was that desperate? Uh, Jim, I was very concerned for his <laughs> welfare. Yes, he was riding the bikes up and down and around the driveway. I actually got the Royal Infield, the 1966 Royal Infield, into top gear going down the driveway. Wow. Brakes flash before the gate, but that's okay. <laughs> So they actually have gates on your driveway to keep you in. Well, we'll get back to that. Anyway, let's bring in Grant Johnson. <laughs> Grant is in British Columbia, Canada. Hello, Grant. Hello, everybody. We've been obviously been having a good time already. And I was noticing that Jim's introduction to this one, we need to time it compared to the very first Raw episode he did. I'm sure it was half the time. <laughs> you know, the thing is, though, I think I'm kind of getting the hang of it. 
I can tell. It's been 68 <laughs> times we've done it now. I think I'm getting the hang of this, you know? I, I could I could do this. Good. <laughs> We're all having fun with it. Number 68. Okay, well, next time. And, and Sam, um, it, it's unfortunate the system isn't working because for those who don't know, we have a system with Sam because it's um, so late at night for Sam. He has a, a ring on his toe that's attached to an electrical cord. And I have a button here I can press to give him a zap, just a jolt, minor jolt to awake uh, him. But it doesn't seem to be working today. Thank goodness for that. My foot's swollen as it is. <laughs> is your foot swollen again? It is. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. It's great. But I can. I, I think I can still get my motorcycle boot on, which is a good thing because I'm going riding tomorrow. Um, I may not be able to get it off afterwards, but then it'll just act as a plaster cast and that'd be fine. It's getting the ride in the matters. <laughs> That's right. I've heard the trick to getting shoes on that don't fit you is to cut down the back of the heel. Total <laughs> silence in response from that. Ed. <laughs> what? I, I'd, rather, I'd rather stick with the old carrier bag routine. <laughs> no, no, the boot, yeah. the boot. Although it's a motorcycle boot. Obviously, you're not going to cut the whole motorcycle boot. Just cut the bottom four inches or three inches. Jim, you are so full of useful suggestions. It Thank must you. be something that you've picked up after all the shows. Thank you, Sam. I appreciate that. So <laughs> Let's change the subject. It's a beautiful evening here. <laughs> It's a beautiful evening and, and you're getting close to winter. We, I mean, we all are, except for the Rixes, of course, who are coming into to spring. And not, now. In, not in Devon. I'm sitting here in shorts and a t-shirt and it's just a beautiful evening. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, it's warm here too, but I mean, you know, winter's around the corner. The, the leaves are starting to change. You know, I'm, I'm in uh, Ontario, Canada, and the leaves are starting to change and, and things are looking like you can tell falls around the corner. And we, we're sort yeah, of- have you, Are you just- are you just about to have that magic time of year when the whole countryside looks like it's on fire? Yeah, we are. And it's just starting actually. And the whole time, the whole season is magic. I absolutely love fall. I'm a huge fan of fall. Um, but uh, the the subtle changes you start to see now are the, the leaves start to wither and, and die off some of them. The Some of the smaller trees, they start to change color. And some of the bigger trees, you'll get the odd ones, the maples in particular, sugar maples are the ones that give you those fantastic colors. They start to change. So you get this whole change thing happening that is really spectacular as long as it doesn't start raining heavily it makes for great riding in the bush it really is just beautiful i aimed for the blue ridge mountains one time um for the the change of the leaves and i was just two days too early so i, I dropped off and, and went and visited a couple of pa- other places and then came up because i met a rider who just said yeah it's magic now just two days and when I got up there, that very day, a storm hit and just blew so many of the leaves oh, off. Yeah. <laughs> Murphy's Law, hey? <laughs> That's unfortunate. And that does happen, of course, because that time of year, you get the unsettled weather and things like that. And it's, it's, a, it's quite a long season. I mean, there'll be weeks and weeks of color changes, but there is a peak. There's no doubt. And um, a lot of places, um, particularly large parks and stuff, they'll actually be posting the percentage of the color change. You know, obviously, to attract people to the park, which is uh, which is kind of neat, but it's, it's pretty uh, it's pretty spectacular. Not pretty spectacular, pretty spectacular is what I was trying to say. Oh uh, yeah, it's, it's it's beautiful up there. We rode through there um, on our trip north, didn't we, Shirley? Oh, yeah, the change yeah. of the oh, colors is just, just magnificent. We got some great shots of uh, us riding through these little back laneways, covered in all these beautiful leaves and golden and orange and. We get yeah, a bit of it here yeah, with the yeah. with the um, trees that the English brought with them when they came here. Our native trees don't ta- don't change colour, but um, along with the rabbit, the fox, 
they bought trees that uh, deciduous. Wait trees. a second. Wait a second. We we sort we sort of talked about some something to do with that surely before we started recording here. And the thing is, if you're descendants <laughs> from the English that came there, aren't you them? Yeah. Well, Just food any, for thought. Have any generation? <laughs> I don't know how many generations we have to pass while we still bear the sins of our forebears. But maybe Jim, you could be right. <laughs> well, let's think about that. Anyway, I mentioned Michelle Lamfair is, is not here with us right now. We we're hoping she's going to come in. She may still come in. She's actually on a trip right now. She's in Pakistan now. I, you guys have, have saw some of her her updates on Facebook. Can anyone sort of give a synopsis on, on exactly what Michelle is doing right now? Uh, she's in Gilgit at the moment, um, which is up in the Karakoram Mountains, um, which is one of the most beautiful places in the world, great riding area, uh, friendly people, gorgeous little villages. And because she's in a women's only riding group, she's um, they've been invited into schools, they've uh, been invited into family homes, she's been eating with the locals and being welcomed by the locals. She's having gangs of fun. Wow. Yeah, she's riding a little, little motorcycle up through there, um, a, a little high bike, and uh, uh, we took the 1150GS up there. And let me tell you, the little motorbike would be perfect up through yeah. there, riding around uh, rock falls and along beside the, the beautiful rivers with scree running down and the Karakoram Mountains. I think she actually made it all the way up to the Chinese border. We couldn't do it because of the snow, but um, we got within about – 60 kilometres, but yeah. uh, I think they made it all the way up to the Chinese border and are on their way back now. Oh, wow. So you couldn't make it because of the BMW, but I guess her bike will do it? Uh, n- well, no. Um, the snow was about, a, it was about a foot thick, Jim, and um, it was just too deep. And uh, we'd met an- another couple coming down. They'd tried to get up there and they'd fallen off five times in about 100 metres and said, don't bother. The security guards said to us, oh, you'll make it up. The trucks are getting up. And we went, yeah, right, okay, fine. <laughs> I think the trucks might, might have a little less trouble in the snow than we would have. Yeah, we, we were trying to ride in the truck, um, uh, um, their um, tracks. tracks, but it was just ice and snow and it was just too hard. Uh, Michelle's been posting st- beautiful stuff about um, meeting local people and going to schools and things like that, and she's just having a great time. And wow, they're very, very friendly people. Yeah. Fantastic photos, absolutely beautiful shots, and yeah, um, the stories that she's telling, superb. So anybody who's listening to this, go and go and check out Michelle Lampier's um, Facebook page. You will be impressed. Yeah, and next month, I guess if she doesn't come on while we're while we're doing this now, um, next month we'll we'll get the full details from her and find out just how the trip went, etc. So, and and nice. it may be that um, well, it is we checked and it's two a.m. or something like that in the morning where she is right now. So maybe that it's just too late, but she may also not have internet where she is we'll find out anyway we, we've got some we've got some good things to talk about today which should uh, be a lot of fun we're going to start off with night riding and then we're going to talk about when they help you who pays and and that's about locals helping you out um, then we're going to talk a little bit about packing but so why don't we start off with that um what we're calling, I swear I will never ride at night again so we're, we're talking about riding at night and really not riding at night because i think Everyone here has said at some point, don't ride at night, period. Don't do it. It's absolutely the wrong thing to do. You just don't do it. We're talking about while you're on a trip, but I mean, it's probably good advice for home too. But let me ask this, who here today has not ridden at night on some trip? 
I'm sorry, I, I didn't hear the hands. <laughs> so if, everyone, everyone here who gives the, gives the advice, yeah, don't ride at okay. night. Everyone's been stuck riding at night at some time. So I think we should get a few stories about um, about riding at night and then then get into the sort of the technicalities of it as far as some uh, ideas, precautions, things like that. But Grant, what, when have you found yourself stuck riding at night? And I, I say stuck because I know you don't want to ride at night. So when was it, oh, where was it, and what happened? 1997, uh, Peru, up in the mountains somewhere. This was when... Uh, there was an El Nino year, and the Pan American Highway was literally washed out for over a thousand miles. And hundreds and hundreds of bridges were washed out, and I was riding with Max from Italy, Max Alia, and we ended up somewhere on the Amazon side of the here uh, of the Andes, trying to find a way north. It was just like there was just nothing. The Pan American was done. Forget it. And we just kept on trying finally found a road that was going in the right direction, looked pretty good, but it was muddy and sloppy and ugly. And we kept on riding. I ended up having to ride Max's bike because he'd only been riding six months. And here he is on an R1150GS in the mud and slop of the Andes trying to get this heavy bike through. And he was having a little difficulty. So anyway, I rode his bike a few times, but we finally got to a point where there was a bunch of buses well, I shouldn't say just buses, the buses, trucks, cars stopped. Nobody was going anywhere. It was clear that this was a line that was not going anywhere because people were wandering around, standing about, chatting with everybody else. And this is on a single lane mud road in the middle of nowhere. We figured, hmm, what's going on here? So we managed to squeeze the bikes up to the head of the line, got up, and there was a bus at that right at the very head of the line, the guy standing there, and he said to me, like, what's going on? And he said, road's closed, landslide. When do you think it's going to open? No say, I don't know. How long have you been here? Three days. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) this is not good. (laughs) This is not good at all. Uh, And it was getting late in the afternoon. It was like two, three o'clock. So we had a choice of going back down, which had taken us all day to get there or camping there overnight. So I thought, well, okay. Yeah, except there's no place to camp because there's a mountainside on one side straight straight up and on the other side of the road, it's straight down. And then they opened the road. Oh, cool. Every, the road's open. We're good to go. And everybody started going. There's a guy up up ahead. You can see he was waving to everybody. Come through. Come on. Come on. Now it's waving at us to go. So here we are slopping through the past the uh, buses and cars. And then we get to the other end of the single lane road where they finally cleared it. And guess what's coming the other way? Three days worth of vehicles coming the other way. Oh. And it's starting to get dark. So we're trying to navigate through the the uh, gathering darkness. It started to rain. It's muddy. It's sloppy. Trucks, cars, buses, everybody's trying to get through. There's people walking, people waving vehicles through. These guys are trying to pass each other to get past. And we're trying to squeeze our way in and out and around all of these vehicles with a cliff vertical drop on one side and straight up on the other side. It was a horror show. It was an absolute nightmare. And then the rain really started to come down. And then it started to get really black, pitch dark, nothing, just mud and slop. And then we got lightning. You see these huge bolts of lightning off to one side. Wow. 
And I'm like, oh, <laughs> words to that effect. You know, this is this is not good. But you've got no choice, really. I mean, you, there's no you've place for no you to choice. stop. And there's a hundred cars and trucks behind us coming down this one lane road. Mm. So we're in the lead. So we just went for it, trying to ride in this muck, lousy headlights. I took my R80 GS, which has a Firefly for a headlight. Sam can attest, and his is better than mine. Uh, so That's yeah, sure. it, it, it was it was a horror show. And reiterated to myself, you know, do not ride at night. This is dumb. Do not do this. But you've got no choice, so you deal with it. How does that rate? For like your 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 scariest ride, uh, probably my scariest ride. Yes, yeah. I mean, it was bad. If if either of us had crashed, the odds of going over the side are about fifty fifty. But when and you it was of, a long way down. When you sort of de- deconstruct the the experience, was there any point that you, you when you think back, you think, well, we could have done this to avoid it? I think it's one of those situations where the the only thing we could have done was literally pulled off to the side anywhere there was six feet of room and let people go by. But that would have taken potentially hours and hours in the horrible pouring rain and we were already really tired. And you're also a target when you're sitting on the side of the road, really. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's the old, if they see you, in those conditions, they were going to look at you. And what happens when you look at an object in the road? You hit it. Yeah, so, true. It, yeah, so just being just barely at the side of the road, not a very good place. And it was really that bad that I'm not sure there was anywhere to pull off at all. And it was This was just a scrape out of the side of the mountain. It was just ridiculous. Um, so I'm not sure there was anything I could have done. I think what we did, which was ride as carefully, safely as we could, and just fast enough to stay ahead of all the vehicles coming along behind us. Um, actually, as it turned out, we were quite a bit faster than them because we finally came to a town, and it was at least 30 minutes before another vehicle came into town behind us. Oof. So we were quite a bit quicker than them, but still, it was it was really dodgy. And I mean, I was very nervous and very concerned. And just imagine poor old Max, six months experience. And here he is in these conditions. Boy, he really struggled. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you so, throw in the rain and the mud. I mean, that just, wow. That, yeah. That makes well, it bad. Lightning flashes were great because all of a sudden you could really see. <laughs> First split Which second. actually, in retrospect, was actually pretty bad because you could see that there was absolutely nothing off to one side and that was not good. Oh, yeah. You get the full view of the valley. Oh, yeah. <laughs> from the drop off. <laughs> wow. That's that's yeah. quite a story. That That really is. Hey, Sam, how about you? Um, when have you done it? When was it? Where was it? What happened? And, and and why did you break your own rule? Well, the last time I rode in the dark was actually last week. Um, Birgit and I had been up onto Dartmoor to watch the sunset. And um, yeah, well, the dark came a lot faster than I was anticipating. So I ended up riding back through these tiny, twisted little roads off the moors. And um, yeah, 
thank goodness for for decent spotlights because otherwise that would have been yeah quite interesting because the locals just zip along those they know where all the, the the narrow bits are and where all the bends are it's almost like they 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 drive those roads on on autopilot but um not the likes of us but um the first time i ever rode at night time in the dark um as in pitch dark was in italy at the start of the big trip and it was february so you can imagine that in february you know, nights are pretty dark, but what I hadn't anticipated were that most of the camping sites were going to be closed, and I'd not expected that in southern Italy at all. The day started to get really long. I mean, with hindsight, I'd just not done enough research, but I didn't give myself very much research time, otherwise perhaps I would have um, found that, but I had been intending to wild camp, and I just could not find a spot. And it was getting really dark, as in pitch black dark, no street lights in the countryside. And novice me was getting really edgy about this. And I'd only been riding a bike for two months and I had far too much gear. And of course, this is pre-GPS, wobbling along <laughs> through the warm air of, of the night, sweating buckets and going through the little villages, cobbled streets on steep hillsides and twisty roads. And of course, there's loads of people milling around because in Italy, in the evenings, well, you know, everybody comes to life and the cafes were full than the bars and the restaurants and so I'm sort of chogging along through all of this lot and then bang out into the dark again and I just not could not find the campsite that I was looking for I did ask at one um, hotel um, but they wanted four days food money so I wasn't having that um, straight into the pitch black outside of the next town and I started to think that I was just going to park up and sleep by the bike but there weren't any, any places that I could pull off and everywhere was fenced and I started to get really tired from this and I started to make mistakes. You know, um, sloppy gear changes and that sort of thing. Yeah. But then I suddenly I found a campsite. But it was closed for the winter, wasn't it? Fortunately, there was a gap at the very closed gate um, for pedestrians to get through. So I rode through, just squeezing my panniers through, thinking, well, just maybe. And there um, in the middle of the camping site was a light. And it was, you know, just a small house. And I went and knocked on the door and I'd startled the caretaker. And if you can imagine me, open face helmet with a face full of road grime and the fumes and the dust, staring at this guy with completely exhausted eyes. It's no wonder he just totally startled expression on his face. And it's funny what, what the mind remembers in situations like that, isn't it? This guy, little chap, probably five foot six at the most, and he was wearing a collarless striped shirt, baggy trousers and braces, and he had bare feet. Isn't it bizarre, <laughs> the things that the mind tucks away? Yeah. But um, I, I very much remember the fear on his face, and I gave him a handshake, which was very nervously taken, and then sign language to him that, you know, I was tired and I needed somewhere to sleep and um, swept my arms around. And thankfully, he took pity on me. But he did indicate that I must be gone with the dawn and pointed at 7am on his watch and the gates to tell me that. And listen, I don't remember parking my bike. Um, I don't remember putting my tent up. But um, what a happy ending. There were so many things that could have gone wrong on that ride through the twisties in the mountains. Oh, and as Grant said, the headlight on my R80GS was pathetically poor. Um, but it was good for the times. So, yeah, I didn't know any better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's only now the headlights have, have become so much better. I mean, now they're they're stupid bright w with cars. But but Sam, something that struck me that when you said there, because we're talking about you know being forced to ride at night and and you, you broke your own rule at, at that. Let me ask you first: Did you have a don't ride at night rule at that point? 
I really try not to ride at night time. And for me, one of the points of riding a motorcycle is that I want to see the things that I'm out there. And I'm always really conscious that at night time, even with my brilliant spotlights, my sensors are still, one of my key sensors is still working on half power. Um, I can't see all of the hazards and I can't see the people in dark clothes. I mean, when we're, when we're overlanding, of course, we didn't have um, decent spotlights on the bike. And um, just dark people, they blend into the shadows and animals and vehicles with no or poor lighting and potholes and ridges of gravel and earthquake and landslides and all that sort of stuff. Mm. You just don't see it. So why would you do it? And we almost never did. If we did... It was usually an indication that something had gone wrong, a puncture or um, that sort of thing. Or we had no choice. So um, ferry timetables, for example, sometimes you just have no choice as to what ferry you're going to be able to get onto. Um, And that's the time the ferry runs and it drops you off at the other side in the dark. So you just got to do it. But, But that story that you just told about finding the campsite, was that early on in your trip? Or what was was, that? um, That was two two months. Well, that was... um, two and a half weeks into the big trip. And I'd, I'd literally passed my test two weeks before. Okay. And, and at that point, did you already have the rule in your head that you wouldn't ride at night? Or was this something you sort of no. learned from doing that? Oh, learned from doing that. Yeah. No, I was just on try not to fall off the bike mode. Right, Because right. you're a new rider. Because you said that you passed a hotel, which was, you know, I think you, think you said four days food money. But I mean, in, in the whole risk factor thing, you know, you'd have to say, well, geez, you'd be better off to do that and waste four days of food money rather than risk, you know, um, some sort of accident at night. Oh, absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And it would have been totally the right thing to do. Um, I could have killed myself so many times on that ride. What a dumb ass thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Hindsight is, uh, they say hindsight's twenty twenty. I wish I could live my life backwards because I could do everything right if that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> Shirley and Brian, how about you guys? Um, well, we've got the same rule that you shouldn't really ride at night. Well, not shouldn't really, shouldn't. Right at night, but we've been stuck out. We've been stuck out in all sorts of places, one around the corner from our home and in um, what Sam was saying about trucks and vehicles with little or no lighting, I think the first night we were in Iran, we um, we got caught out. The road was slower than we anticipated and you'd see a big shape looming ahead of you and then this tiny, peeny little light and you'd think, I wonder what that is. Oh, it's a truck driving with just parking lights on. Yeah. They were always entertaining. Yeah, they, um, I remember one particular incident. Shirley really got a scare because um, the truck, it was a winding road and it looked like the truck was heading straight towards us as we're going around a corner and uh, she screamed on the back of the bike. But I must be a slow learner because um, as, a, as a kid, I used to ride um, every or every other Friday night I would leave Melbourne and ride 350 miles in the dark to my hometown. Oh. And um, I knew every bit of that road. I knew which part is fenced, which part didn't have fences. Um, I um, would, uh, when we would, I'd get to where the, there were no fences and the kangaroos were pretty thick. I'd tuck in behind a car or a truck, normally a car that was travelling at a reasonable pace. Uh, to give yourself a bit of coverage. And on, on one night, um, I was coming into it towards a town, the halfway mark is about 200 and odd miles into the ride. 
and um, I could see lights of a car in front of me. I'm thinking, is that a car? What is it? And it didn't have uh, – it had a – he was um, towing a trailer and it didn't have lights on it and it was quite a long trailer and I nearly ended up in the back of the trailer because I couldn't judge exactly oh. where it was. You're thinking it's um, a vehicle coming the other way and really it's running in your, yeah, in your direction. Yeah, yeah. You know, you get you get that point where you're not sure what it is, mm-hmm. and um, as as Sam said, that you narrow your vision, you narrow your focus down. We've done that ride a couple of times. Um, that was on my old 750 Honda. Uh, so, but I did all sorts of things. You know, I put um, halogen headlight globes in it. You know, to give you a better vision. Um, I actually put a driving light over the top of the headlight uh, shell, uh, which I could turn on and off, obviously. And I thought, yeah, this is the, this is the duck's guts. This is great. I can do this. And um, I was going for a ride from Mildura to Sydney uh, to the Castrol six-hour races with two mates. And we were having a great time. We're coming through. We just hit the mountains as it's getting onto twilight. And I thought, right, I'll, I'll, I'll take the lead. I'll put my driving lights on and um, everyone can follow me. And as soon as I turned the driving lights on, uh, stupid here had somehow uh, wired the bike to such an extent that it's it fried all the wires uh, oh, on no. the lights. Which, you know, if you know the old 750 Hondas, all the, the wires meet in the back of the headlight shell and they were all fried together. So here we are in the middle of the night with a cigarette lighter um, trying to work out how to get power to the bike so it would go. Um, and, you know, uh, when you smoked, we all used to smoke in those days, you used to have um, silver paper inside the uh, cigarette packet. Mm-hmm. It's very handy for mate, for repairing broken fuses if you don't have a broken fuse. Yeah, that's right. So we hot-wired the bike and uh, I rode to the Castrol six hours, uh, partied there for two days and rode back to Mildura, which is about, oh, I'm just trying to think, maybe oh, a thousand kilometres, something like that, with no lights. No lights at all on the bike, just power. <laughs> wow! <laughs> but you know recently, that, that, that cigarette tinfoil. I mean, that, that was a that was a trick that a lot of people use. The, th- the cigarette packages were very handy. And the whole smoking thing that's died off. It's a shame because you also use the cigarette packages, <laughs> didn't you, for for adjusting points? You know, you, I think you folded it over, and it was it was about the I don't know, I forget what it was twenty thousand exactly, or something like that. But exactly, what's that? I, I, when I stopped smoking, I started carrying, you know, tin, aluminium foil, tin foil, <laughs> and I, that, that into my toolkit. Right. <laughs> so, but, Brian, no, I'm curious, out of all this, how long did it take you to learn the lesson or, or come up with your own rule of never ride at night? Uh, Excuse me. I'm Can still, I interrupt? Sure. He still rides at night. He still rides at night. Wait a second. I've got heaps of... No way. Because Brian is the first one to say, don't ride at night, period. Now, hang on. Now, I'm going to give you an escape here, Brian. Is riding at night at home different than riding at night on a trip? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I enjoy going for a ride. Quite often, I'll get caught out at night. And that's why two of my bikes have got good driving lights on them. And... um, you know, I, I ride up to Canberra a bit from where we are in central Victoria for a meeting and uh, I decided that I've got this Kawasaki GTR, um, which is a great highway bike and stonking engine in it. So I took this thing for a run up to Canberra and the meeting finishes at about 11, 12 o'clock, say, and I've got to ride back eight hours 
and I can come back the highway and then cut across on um, some secondary roads, which is Kangaroo Central. So I'm trying to make it, so I'm going pretty quick to get down to that area before dusk, dusk, but I don't make it. And I'm coming through there and I'll put the Kawasaki's lights on, which are 10 candle power. They are shocking. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I could not get above 80 kilometres an hour with any safety when you've got, you know, uh, minimum 50 kangaroos jumping across the road in front of you at any stage. And you just, uh, I, I just had to tuck in behind a ute and use the old trick of um, following him and hoping that nothing was going to clean me up sideways. Mm. But uh, Shirl and I, Shirl and I had a trip back from Mildura. Remember I had that green um, BMW? Yeah. I bought this bike and it had stonking lights on it, like they were aircraft landing lights. Uh, unbelievable. We're up home in Mildura and it's um, it it's hot. It was stinking hot. It's 45 degrees. And I said to Shirl, we, we had to get home for work, and I said, well, let's wait until dusk and we'll tuck in behind a truck going down through the kangaroo country and then I'll uh, we'll open it up. So I get down around there and uh, this thing could do 160 k's. You wouldn't run out of lights. It's fantastic. So we're cruising along and you could spot foxes in the paddocks coming across towards you, you know. We went around one corner and we, uh, this rabbit, I could see it coming. It ran right under the front wheel and I ran over it and it shifted us sideways, didn't it? And then he got a flat tire. Uh, a flat tire in the middle of the night and he told the story. The, be- the best part about that, once we got the flat tire, we pulled into this motel and it was very similar to Sam frightening the man in the in the campground oh, yeah. in Italy. We've seen the phone number of the motel on the front door and there's no lights on, it's, I don't know, 2 o'clock in the morning or something. So I've rung the motel phone number and we could hear the phone ringing in the office inside the door and next thing a light goes on and a man comes in in striped pyjamas <laughs> and right. all he can see is the shape of a motorbike and people and he's picked up the phone and this little voice went, hello? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry to wake you and he went, Phew. <laughs> I think he was so relieved it was a woman and not, uh, you know, the Hell's Angels had just pulled up. I thought the Hell's Angels were going to um, rape and pillage in the Harcourt Motel. It wasn't kind of <laughs> their speed. Yeah, I just took the tyre off and left it at the front door, uh, the wheel off, I should say, left it at the front door, and uh, the, the postman took it away and uh, some other guy brought it back and it was fixed. How <laughs> brilliant is that? Brian, I don't know. I don't know quite what to make of your story. Your stories, stories. I sort of think they they almost sound like excuses for riding at night in one way. But on the other thing, I, I think what I'm picking up is what you're saying is a faster bike is safer at night with super bright lights. I'm, I'm, is this what you're trying to say? Uh, well, yeah, I think so, Jim. I, I've uh, my, my my travel bike, the BM, now has Zenon inserts in its headlights in the lights. Mm-hmm. You know that that. that white blue light you get, plus driving lights. And when I've done runs up to these, uh, Canberra, um, I led a couple of guys up there. And we're on the freeway, part of the freeway, and I've got the headlights on, and trucks are flashing me because the lights are so bright oh, coming yeah. towards them. Um, and I bugger it. You know, that, that's what I do. 
I just leave him on. Actually, that happens to us when we travel overseas too because we travel on the correct side of the road and the rest of the world travels on the incorrect <laughs> side of the road. <laughs> on the GPS, it has, it has a big light and yeah. a little light and when we're travelling on the incorrect side of the road, right. the big light is going into the uh, oncoming traffic. And people, if we are riding at night, which, yes, Jim, we do far more than we should, they're always flashing their lights at us because they think we've got our lights on high beam. Yeah, yeah, that's to do with the lens as well. The, the lenses are actually designed in a way to, to put more light on the side of the road like and not into oncoming traffic. So tough, yeah. tough to avoid. That's right. So yeah, one of the things right. about... We've been caught out in Colombia uh, in the mountain range, similar to, to what Grant was saying. We've been caught out. Uh, we got off a ferry in Crete. We had to ride from one side of Crete to the <laughs> other. Hours. Three hours in the dark on strange roads, no GPS, no nothing. Um, I mean, we made it just. We don't get there. We always get there. Okay, so this is this is interesting because you have this don't ride at night rule, which you seem to break all the time, and you have ways to break it. But the, but what I'm Brian, I, I'm a, I'm impressed because what I feel like now is I feel like we have an expert at breaking the don't ride at night rule. So I, let me just put that question. <laughs> let me put that question back to you again, Brian. Is it safer to ride at your home in your home country at night than it is when you're on a trip? <laughs> Um, well, no, no, she'll say no. Keeping in mind that some people may not live in Australia and may come to Australia to ride, hence being on a trip and riding your area. I don't want to confuse the issue. An Australian guy once said to me, the problem with riding at nighttime in Australia is that the kangaroos can't judge how far away you are or how fast you're moving or how big they are, so they don't give a toot and they'll run in front anyway. Mm. Totally. Yeah. I that, find that was the tongue-in-cheek when they the just sit there. No, I'll, that's not tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> the worst I found is when you, can, you drive right up to them in the middle of the highway and you're six feet away from them and you honk and you rev your engine and they still don't move. I mean, you, I think you could literally drive yeah. right up to them. It wouldn't yeah. matter. They pay no attention to you. Yeah. How yeah, big is a kangaroo brain? One, yeah, we've hit one and killed one on the road. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're not they're not the smartest creatures in the world, but they are beautiful. So that's mm. just saying. Fantastic to watch, aren't they? Listen, Jim, I mean, I'm listening to what Brian and Shirley are saying, and I, I do have to say something here. Um, nighttime riding can be exhilarating. Sam, Sam, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're trying we're trying to set precedents here. We're we're trying to teach what the right way, you know, and all of that. And then you just jump over there with Brian and Shirley. Jeez. Well, listen, I, I, well. I, I do have to qualify this. And the difference is if you've got a decent set of spotlights, exactly what Brian's been saying, then you can see so much more. You can you can judge it. And on the very rare occasion that I ride at nighttime. I do find it exhilarating. I like the fact that there's this tunnel of light where everything in front of me is completely focused. Um, and it's, it's a ride on adrenaline because you know you're riding on the edge. Um, and perversely, because you're not distracted by what's going on at the sides because you're in this tunnel of light, it can be fun. But do I do it often? No, very rarely. I might, I might get addicted to it, actually, because it is fun. But no, actually, I want to see what's the sides. I want to ride in daylight. That's why I ride. Yeah. 
I, I, I hear you, Sam. I hear you. I've got one more story from a, a, a mate of mine who <laughs> loves riding at, at any time, and he's got a blackbird. And we, we went for a ride for an evening meal at a hotel out in the bush somewhere. And um, we're coming back, and Ian says, I'll lead, I'll lead. So away he goes, and we start hitting the corners, nice twisty corners. And next thing, there's all these sparks. It's, it's like a welding spark coming off the underside of his bike. And he's throwing these sparks out as the, the centre stand is hitting the, the ground. And um, when we stopped, the, the, the smart bugger, he'd, he'd um, put strips on his centre stand to do that deliberately and shower the rest of us in sparks. <laughs> he, he put what why strips he on? What did he put on? Yeah, that's why he wanted the lead. Titanium sparks like crazy when you drag it in the road. <laughs> Titanium strips. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> crazy. I remember when I was in my 20s and my eyes were much better than they are now. I used to love riding at night. It was absolutely my favorite time to ride. And I had a 750 Suzuki water-cooled with extra CB driving lights set up. I had them set up to cross over because I discovered that when you lean into a corner hard, yeah. the if you lean into a right corner, the left-hand light illuminated around the corner very well if it was set to cross over. And, and that worked really well. But I also know a guy who has a metal plate in his head now because he hit a deer at night. And I know another guy who's yeah. no longer with us because he hit a deer at night. Mm-hmm. And I've almost hit deer at night. And I've had a deer literally jump over my head at night. And the guys behind me told me he just missed your head. So ah, I'm kind so of he, that's the that's the deer that took all your hair off, mate. Is it? That's the one. <laughs> that's the one. Right, took, took the top of my helmet right off, clean. <laughs> no, it's. I mean, when I my eyes were better, and I am now <clears throat> over fifty and older, and my eyes are not what they used to, and I can really tell that my vision is not what it used to be. At night, there's just no way. And I know medically speaking, and you talk to anybody, they'll tell you, yeah, your eyes aren't as good when you get older. Um, and I try not to ride at night at all. I mean, I've got driving lights on my 1200GS. Yeah, just, I'm sorry. It's still pathetic. It's mm. just not good enough. If I put on some yeah. big ones uh, and just, more just, and just anything one, else, maybe. One thing. Do you guys... Do you guys find um, um, your visors on your on your um, helmets, they distort light when you're riding at night? Not if you've got a good one. Do you find that? I don't have any issues with well, my visor. Yeah, I do. I, I, I actually lift my visor up and try and ride without it if I can. Do you have glasses on as well, Brian? No, the screen the screen takes most of the wind away, but, you know, I just, I just uh, it gives me far more vision. Mm. Can I just say, you're all over 50 and you're all old enough to know better. <laughs> very good point, Shirley. Thank you for reminding us of that. And, and yeah. yes, you know, this, this conversation is not at all going where I expected it to go. But yes, I, I like riding at night as well, I have to admit. It's, it is great fun. <laughs> but you know, One of the things that I've noticed that's in, that we've all got in common, um, if we do ride at night, we really want to have decent spotlights on the bikes. There's, there's yeah. no doubt. Like, it makes such a massive difference. And Birgit um, is is um, she has a, an eye condition, which means that when we're when we're travelling and we sometimes you know a ferry for example pulls in at that time, so you've got to ride at night time. She her eyes don't adjust 
very quickly at all. So bright light, headlight coming towards her. Um, when the car's gone, she's got seconds afterwards where she cannot see a thing. And so on the rare occasions that we do ride at nighttime, riding behind her was really uncomfortable because, you know, I'm swinging around behind her doing a, a sort of mother hen impersonation, making sure that nobody comes up behind us, just bopping my foot and my foot brake. Um, but since she put spotlights on her bike, wow, what a difference. Because it just means that this extreme contrast between the bright lights of the heads coming towards and what she can still see in front, the difference is um, significant. Yeah, no, I I totally agree, and I think if you're gonna if you I think you should have spotlights anyway because I think during the day it gives you that added visibility, which which is mm-hmm. so crucial. But um, at nighttime, no doubt. But there are times like when you have a line of traffic coming towards you where you have to put your spotlights down, and that really does away with with your vision. And then you've got the oncoming light shining into your eyes. So th- there's real problems with that. like they they definitely help, but we all know. It's, it's higher risk. I mean, the same as animals on the side of the road, et cetera, because you can be going along, you get a line of traffic come towards you, flash your lights at you to turn your, your auxiliaries down and your high beams down, which you do. All of a sudden, you can't see the ditch and something's in the ditch that comes out at you or something on the road. I mean, there's so many things. Um, but that's when, that's when you, you angle your lights. So my left, because we ride, um, ride on the left here, my left spotlight is the one that's aimed more to the side. Um, and that combination means that um, I can. I just don't have to dip them. You so you leave them on as you're coming into oncoming yep. traffic. Yeah, yeah. So yep. that's a great method. Uh, like multiple lights is a, is, a, can, is a great method. What's that? Yeah, and you can get you can get different spotlights too. You can get flood and um, distance. Yeah, and a lot of guys put left flood uh, for yep. the left hand side of the road, and and right is distance. Right, that's what I do. But yeah. we we still admit, right? It's it's high risk. There's no doubt about it. And I guess the thing when it comes to travel, oh, yeah. and, and this is probably where it all where it comes from is, you know, night riding. You, you know, if you're going to do it, you have to understand it increases risk. There's just no doubt about it. And can you accept those risks? And is foreign soil the place to take those risks? You know, with all other no. things considered. No, I think that's the big secret here. Is we're all talking pretty much about having fun riding at night in our own home area. Mm-hmm. I know the risks exactly where I live. Brian knows exactly the risks where he lives, etc. cetera. Um, if you're in another country, totally different rules. If you're in Pakistan, like Michelle is, riding at night is just plain dumb. It's not fun. It's highly stressful, extremely dangerous. You have no idea what the risks are, what's going to come out around the next corner, what's the story. Um, I remember in South America um, coming along the road and there was rocks on the road. You know, like, what are these rocks all about? You know, every once in a while there's a rock. Well, it turns out the trucks use the rocks to hold them while they park on the road and try and fix the truck with no lights. So that's a hazard right there. And then they drive away and leave the rocks behind. And I remember coming around a corner and there was three rocks on the road and looking around, you know, what are these rocks doing here? Because they weren't near a cliff or a mountainside. They're just kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And looked, oh my goodness, the bridge was gone. The total marking for this big, huge bridge that it was out was three rocks on the road. Mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah, I remember you telling that story not too long ago, yeah. actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You get used to seeing these rocks on the road, and you come along at night, and you see some rocks on the road. So what? <laughs> it's not going to be pretty 
I saw some footage um, just this week uh, on YouTube, and uh, it was a, um, a guy who was um, riding at nighttime. And even though he had decent lights on the bike, he did not see the rock in the road until it was too late, and he was bang straight over the top of it. Um, and he was very lucky to stay on, I reckon. But he bent his rims. And when you're on the road anywhere, but particularly when you're on a big trip, well, you're concentrating on taking care of yourself and taking care of your bike. And that's a very good reason not to ride at nighttime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that the number one thing you have to keep in mind when you're on a trip is that while the trip is fun and the riding is fun and everything is great, you have one thing in mind at all times, getting home at the end of it. Always ride with that in mind. I want to get home. I don't want to be in a hospital and get shipped home. Sometimes hospital food's good. <laughs> yeah, my experience has not been that good. Oh, wow, Sam. That's, I just thought of a great book idea for you. Hospital foods from around the world. That's a compared to <laughs> that would go very nicely with the one I'm trying to persuade Birgit to write, and that's cake and cookie shops of the world. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it could be a package set. Yeah. So, so let me let's just to wrap this thing up. So everybody agrees, auxiliary lights are the way to go. LED lights are, are fantastic nowadays. Low power draw, you know, incredible light, instant on, instant off. They're they're very very bright and punchy. By the way. Does anyone else find that LED lights seem to attract bugs in a heavy bug area? Over they all in- bugs. No, over <laughs> incandescent. Maybe it's just me, but I could swear that anytime I turn on my LED driving lights, riding lights, extra lights, auxiliary lights rather, uh, anytime I turn those on, it's like, I know they're super bright and, and I know that could, that very likely is it, but I swear there's something about the LED because LED flashes, right? We don't see it, but it flashes. You ever, um, you ever do stuff like wave your hand in front of an LED light? You can see your hand sort of in a jittery thing. That's because it flashes. Same as you put run water, run your tap and put your LED light by the tap. You'll see it. It almost has a jittery thing. So I'm wondering, does that like stimulate bugs or something? Jim, the moral of this story is if you're going to ride at nighttime with your spotlights, you have to do some research. How fast do the bugs naturally fly out and ride faster? Oh, that's why Brian always rides a faster bike at night. That makes so much sense to me now. <laughs> now I suspect that what's actually happening is you're attracting the bugs from farther away because the light is getting farther out. Well, and, and I'm heading for that of light down the road. I get that, that but I, I, I just think it seems like, because I've run incandescent lights as well, and I don't ever remember the bugs coming in quite so much as what they do. Now, now the LEDs are, are definitely brighter. I've got these ones from Cyclops now, and uh, they're just, they're incredible. They're tiny little lights, and they're just unbelievable. They punch a hole through the night. So, I mean, very likely it's that, but I just had this thing in my head. I've always thought, I wonder if LEDs attract bugs. I'm going to have to look that up. Yes, go for it. Research to be reported on next time. Right. <laughs> I would like to add one little tidbit to this. <laughs> talking sure. about riding at night. It's not just what's in front of you, but making sure the idiots behind you can see. So let's get a little extra LED lighting or something going on at the back too. Mm. It's one of the reasons that I have two braking lights on the back. Yeah. And flashing brake lights and all that kind of stuff. And I make sure that I've got a reflective sticker, which Horizons Unlimited has, which goes on the back of helmets. And that reflective sticker on the back of your helmet, if you've got a good one, it really flashes back. And all of a sudden, you've got a much bigger um, triangle of light if you've got extra lights or whatever. But the your bike feels closer to the car that's following you if you've got a, um, something reflecting on your helmet as well as the taillight. 
that I, deals closer to something totally back agree. Totally agree. Always put reflective yeah, um, Just Just one thing with modulating lights and all the rest of it, you've got to be careful because here it's illegal to have modulating yeah. lights. You know, yeah. so you might be going into a country where things are, are, are illegal that you don't know about. So again, it comes back to research, doesn't it? Yep, you have to be careful with that for sure. If you do go for modulating lights, I think you want to make sure you have ones that you can turn off the modulation. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But but yep. bright is really the best. So super bright. You know, I mentioned Cyclops. I also have these um, this conversion kit on my bike that I sound like a salesman now. Uh, but I have this conversion <laughs> kit on my bike that that converts my my turn signals to on the back to super bright brake lights. So they're normal turn signals, but when you step on the brakes, they're super bright red as well as my brake light, and and that just does. The just wonders for uh, calling attention to the fact you're, you're slowing down. It's it's amazingly yeah. bright. So something like that is great. They don't flash or anything. They just stay on. Yeah, that's good enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, anything else? Yeah, it, I, uh, my yeah, well, my old, the army bike I've got is this um, XT six hundred. It has these switches that turns all the lights off. <laughs> I think that's called for evading police. <laughs> good, good, good lesson, Brian. Thanks, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for reminding us of that little trick. <laughs> but one of the things about spotlights, I mean, before um, the current ones from Cyclops and Denali and all the rest of it, um, is you know people used to to conjure up some great spotlights to go on their bikes. I had a friend who had um, what looked like there were a couple of headlights from a Rolls Royce. These things were huge on either side of his um, of, of his tank. Of course, being a BMW, there's there's the bash bars for him to mount them on, and um, yeah, they threw out a fair bit of light. But of course, the bulbs weren't so good back then either, so wasn't mm. as anything like as much as now. But hey, still well better than just the headlight. Yeah, except when you they're they're they yeah. draw so much power, they slow your engine down when you flip them on. You feel you well, yourself well, lose a few. That that was something that's right that's something we had to look at in those days was how much um are you, are you is your power output on your bike and then measure your lights accordingly yeah yeah i and, had that too uh, on my on my klr i threw a set of lights yeah. on pia lights and uh, it would just drain the battery not really quickly it would take quite a while but you were steadily losing power uh yeah that's go. one of the reasons why i like the ones that we've got because you know our old airhead bmws they don't produce an awful lot of extra power um, even with electronic fiddles going on. So we really looked for ones that had a, a low power draw and they, they've been doing really well. Yeah. I didn't realize you had a stator on your bike. That's neat. Actually, I've got gremlins in there sometimes, but not most <laughs> of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've still got that old uh, driving light, that old square driving light that I put on the 750 Honda if anyone wants it. It's in the shed. <laughs> ah, there you go. So if you're looking got a 100 watt bulb in it, I hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, um, let's let's just take we we went quite a while on this. Let's take just a, a quick break to thank our sponsor, and then when we come back, we'll talk about when they help you who pays, and um, then we get some other things we'll talk about. So we'll just stick around. We'll just take a few seconds here to thank Fresh Tracks, Fresh Tracks. .co.uk supports this show. Fresh Tracks has been around since the 90s. They work with companies and groups to inspire, motivate, challenge, build communication skills through team building exercises. So um, if you've got a company uh, or work for a company that, um, hey, this is a great thing. If you work for a company, you could always suggest this 
as a team building exercise because Fresh Tracks is owned by a motorcyclist that loves adventure motorcycling. That's why they're here. Um, and uh, what, what a great connection there. So go suggest it to your company and, and tell them, hey, let's do some team building, especially with uh, everything happening the way it is now, I, I think, in my mind, with um, COVID happening, people working from home certainly has has splintered the the uh, traditional work experience. So um, look up freshtracks.co.uk and uh, see what they've got to offer. Thank you, Fresh Tracks. Okay, so into part two of the show. When they help you, who pays? So here's the thing. Let me set this up. So when a local helps you out of a situation, you know, you break down or whatever, and, and it happens all the time, they give you a meal, place to stay, maybe help you out. I mean, some sometimes, I mean, some of the stories are incredible, the amount of help that people will give. And a lot of times, the people who are offering this help, giving this help, they have very little you know, in some countries, and they really go out of their way. Um, just had one the other day where they were saying that the, somebody had helped them out. They came out and picked them up, and then they took them back to their house. They had to go to work the next morning. They left them the keys to their house and said, use my shop, and, and don't forget to make yourself a lunch to take with you when you leave. I mean, just incredible stuff like that. So first of all, I think the first question I want to tackle with this is, is it ethical to accept help from people who may have less than you and you're you're on your adventure? And I know we sort of talked about this, I think, many episodes ago. I think it might have been a couple of years ago. But what do you guys think? Is it ethical or is there an ethical issue here to consider? Mm. I think that all of us travel expecting to pay our way. And that means that it is hard um, to accept things for people with no obvious price tag. But some people really don't want um, money. They they get the, a buzz from helping you. For some, um, helping is a way of life. It's a culture thing. And it's a, a real joy to be around that. For others, it's the right thing to do. And others are just being simply kind. And in my experience, this is the way of the world. And you're right, Jim. People with the least money often offer, um, are, you know, are the most generous. And I think that there are all sorts of things that you can do when it's not possible um, to pay. But, you know, having said that, I think that when it feels just that it might be all right to offer to pay, you still should not assume um, that the payment isn't going to be accepted. If you're polite and respectful with the way you do it, then that's fine. And there are some cultures in the world where offer of a payment um, or to repay, you, you've got to do it twice, very gently, before somebody will accept. If you do it once, then it's just face saving and that's fine. But if you do it twice and very gently, then in that culture, um, the people are more likely to say, well, yeah, okay, thanks very much. Um, let's share the cost or, or something like that. Okay, Sam, Sam let, let me just save that though, because th- that's the second part of what we're talking about here is, is, is ways to compensate. We're, so we'll, we'll get to that. But I'm, I'm really want to look at that ethical part of it first before we get into ways to do okay. it. Sure. So um, anyone else? Um, is, is there an ethical issue here? I don't think so. I think there isn't. I think what Sam said is right that, you know, we all go on these trips expecting to pay our own way. But I'm sure we've also come across people that go looking for people to help them for free. Um, I'm just trying to think of a nice way of putting this. Um, (laughs) And I think that, yeah, that's, yeah, sponges. That's a good word, Grant. And uh, and I think that uh, that is really unethical to go looking for people because you know that in their nature, in this particular culture, they want to help 
But um, when you know that they're really broke and you, you know, it's just sometimes it just doesn't sit well with me. Mm. I just think people people can um, play on play on someone's good nature, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. that's an yeah. excellent point. I think I think when you're really stuck. And people are so generous and so kind. I mean, we've all got a myriad of stories of people, you know, we would have been in more strife than the early settlers if we hadn't had assistance from locals. That is just a wonderful, wonderful experience of life on the road. But to go looking for it, to use it and abuse it is appalling. And there are people out there who've been known to do that. Oh, there really are, Shirley. That's such a good point. I met a guy who had travelled for six months across Asia and was bragging about the fact that he hadn't paid for accommodation once. Wow. Every night, he would go and knock on a stranger's door and ask for permission to stay with them. And he was travelling across Asia. So it was very difficult for people to say no in their culture. Yeah, uh, that's just that sucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that does. That, yeah, that's just wrong. And, and uh, we talk about cultures and you know, the Muslim faith is, you know, you, you offer um, to strangers, travellers in particular, um, you offer them a bed for three nights if necessary or food. We've had food offered to us. We, we always, always offer to pay and uh, or, or whatever, don't we, sure? And yeah. I, I think that's what that, – that must be a rule, I think. If you're doing a trip like this, pay your way and uh, accept the – the, the good grace of strangers who are helping you out. You know, I, I had a guy who, I just remember that guy in Goa, Shirley, I, I wanted to change you all in the motorbike. And uh, he said, oh, you come around to my place. He had, a, he, he had a mechanic shop. He said, come around, come around Saturday afternoon. So I go around there on a Saturday afternoon to change my oil and I bought the oil off him and all that sort of stuff. I was there for hours because he then wanted to feed me, um, uh, give me beer um, and uh, sit around with you to talk. <laughs> I thought he'd been abducted. I was going to say, is this when Shirley was wondering where you were? <laughs> Brian's off having a grand old time. <laughs> and I had to ride the bike um, with a few beers under the belt and in the dark. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, I think we have to remember that it, it really makes people feel good to help out a stranger, number yep. one. And number two, you are the most exciting thing that's happened to them in who knows how long. You are really interesting. You are going to be a topic of conversation for them to all their friends for donkey's ages again. You know, it's, this is something that's really exciting for them. So I think that we have to keep in mind that we are an attraction, but don't yeah. abuse it. Right, One of the things that's always in my mind is that overlanders need to remember that they are ambassadors for their own country. Amen. So how the locals see us behaving is the image that they will be thinking about the countries that we come from. And if we go out there and we're sponges, we're, we're money grubbers, we're treating their culture with no respect, then that is the image of our countries that we're leaving behind us. Yeah. Yeah, I remember an experience we had in South America. I won't mention where, but we wanted to get a hotel room and it was late. It was getting dark. And, you know, the, the woman at the front said, um, oh, we have no rooms. We have no rooms. Sorry. The man at the front said, we have no rooms. We're, we're full up. And, oh, okay. Um, and Susan spoke to her, to her in Spanish. And I said something to Susan in English. And this voice came from the back. Oh, they're from Canada. They're okay. What? <laughs> Oh, we yeah. have room. Yeah. 
We have rooms. <laughs> Who okay. were they giving rooms to, Grant? What oh, nationality? Let's not go there. I am not going to get into that. We're not. <laughs> let's not go there. The moral of the story is when we found out that they had some really wonderful Canadians that stayed there for a couple of nights, and they really enjoyed them, and they were wonderful people. So therefore, all Canadians were wonderful people. Oh, there you go. So it's Sam's point, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the whole thing. Whereas they'd obviously had some experience with people from other nationalities who were not so wonderful and they just didn't want to deal with us. So you are an ambassador, as Sam says, without a doubt. Brian, I, I just want to say that that beer comment and the night riding comment did not go unnoticed. You were only not caught on that because <laughs> someone else came in. So I'm just going to leave it for now. Yeah, for now. <laughs> So, okay. Silence, silence except for a chuckle from Hi. Brian in response. <laughs> I was going to say, really, you know, international travelers, and you're, you're right, Grant, we are the best ambassadors for our country because we are meeting the, the common folk, not, not the politicians and all the rest of it. We're meeting people as they are, and uh, they see us, and that, that, that can have a big impact on people's perception of the country you come from. Yeah, it's huge. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've had the same experience in reverse. You meet somebody from somewhere and they're really good people. Oh, that country's wonderful. And then you meet somebody from somewhere else. Oh, that country's terrible. You know, yeah. yeah. So I think you have to be just very careful in how you are perceived and treat other people as you would have them treat you. Mm, that's a good, that's good advice. Yep. That's a lovely way. Go ahead. You've all heard a story about the Magotcharian Angels and what they did for us. They did not, did not uh, ask at any point for money for putting us up, feeding us, and all that sort of stuff. We bought um, some food and some grog, didn't we? We did. But they had. But they a, didn't expect that. They of didn't us. expect it, and they were very humble. And these people are very poor in the, the back blocks of Siberia. Um, but I left money uh, in a, a jar they had there to pay for their hospitality. I felt it was just the right thing to do. Because they were very kind. If you may recall, they gave us the fold-down night and day double bed because we were the married couple. But we had to share it. We shared the room with... Um, About eight, but that's... I think it's they shared the bed with somebody say. else. <laughs> exactly. Well, not, the, not the double night and day. No, that was our <laughs> So, okay, so um, on to the second part of it, of course. When, when you do accept help... How do you thank them and compensate them for their out-of-pocket expenses or even just their time and effort without the risk of offending? Because, you know, we've already, this already come up in the conversation that you can certainly offend people by offering them. And, and you know, it's also that thing of it in, in many cultures is some cultures will, it's sort of traditional to offer more than once, you know, and then finally pay. And then um, you wonder how many times should you offer? No, 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 I'll get it. No, 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 let me pay, you know, or, or other ways to show gratitude. So, so do you guys have some way of judging it and then some ideas of how or, or what you're using for gratitude? It's, it, it's such it's a hard, hard one. Hard. Um, yeah. the, first, the first time we encountered it was in Turkey on our first trip. And this young um, night porter at our hotel ended up paying for our lunch one day and there were three of us, me and Brian and a girlfriend, and um, we just thought he wouldn't let us pay uh, because he had invited us to lunch and that was the way things were. So when we left the hotel, we left him some Turkish currency, which was going to be no good to us anywhere else, and we had phone cards 
in those days you didn't have um, before mobile phones. Sorry, we're 104 years old. Um, and so we left our phone cards and they were tangible things for him to use without offending. without offending him. Right, that's a phone card for making long distance calls. Yeah, yeah. In, the, in, in his country or he could have used it to make local calls, you know. He's he was in Istanbul and his family were in Kurdistan. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's great. A lot of it, you know, when when you're being helped by somebody, it's it comes down to a little bit of research and some courtesy. And most of us are brought up by our parents to be polite and show courtesy to other people, aren't we? It's 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 trained into us. So all it is is transferring that natural skill that we have into wherever we are, and it's the little things like knowing as within a few days of going into a country how to say please thank you where is the toilet those sorts of things in their language and um whereas the toilet is always going to be nice um and if you can speak a little bit of a common language then share some tales of the road as grant said um you're exciting to people and it's it's great to be able to share some of the things that you've come across along the way. Um, I remember Birgit and I sitting um, in India with um, some Indian kids and they could all speak a little bit of English and we were talking about the places that we'd been and some of the things that we'd learned and seen and these kids were just soaking it up. We had exactly the same experience in the United States, did a presentation to a, a, a class as a, a thank you to a family that we been staying with um, to one of the kids' school class. And again, the kids were just soaking it up. So it was a really nice way um, to give something back. But if you're invited into somebody's home, and you know, we've talked a lot in the past about whether you should, um, how much research you should do. And I think one of the ways of paying back for um, hospitality and so on, you get invited to stay in somebody's home, is knowing things like, in this country, do you take your shoes off when you go into the country? Do you shake hands with a woman or not? And there are some countries where it's just absolute insult for you to do it. And whatever you think about um, that culture being totally different to your own, if that's the way their culture is, you're a guest in their country, so um, you adapt. And, you know, there are other countries where you absolutely show respect to the elders and respect to the kids. Everybody in the middle, well, it's just fairly normal. You just chat to them fairly normally, but you, you make sure you show elders respect and the kids, and all of a sudden things just totally open up for you. One of the ways that um, Berg and I um, have um, sort of paid back a little bit is um, when we've stayed with somebody who's got kids and we've taken um, the parents or the kids, whatever's possible, for a little ride on the bikes. And it's just something that they would never normally have the opportunity to do. So you're sharing. Um, and there's other times, you know, where you can, where you're staying with somebody and you can see that they're grafting really hard to make their living. And if you st- if you stay for um, two or three days because you've got a problem or just because you're invited to and you don't have the sensation that you're taking the mick by stay- overstaying your welcome, then get stuck in and help. Um, I stone picks in the fields in Greece one time when the family that I was staying with, they had a couple of fields out the back and um, every year the, the weather changes would bring the stones to the surface. So before they could plough, um, everybody would go out and they would pick up all the stones and they would take them to the side. And they were gobsmacked that I would want to do that. But what a great way of paying back. And there are all sorts of things mm. that you can do like that. 
which are fun anyway. And something else that I noticed, and this goes in with what Brian and Shirley were saying just now, is that, yeah, you know, sometimes leaving a little bit of money in a, an envelope with a smiley on it, um, just on the pillow so that they know that it's left as a gift, that's, that's not a bad thing to do. You wouldn't be able to give it to them. They wouldn't take it from you, but just leaving it behind. Yeah. And there's something else that works particularly well in many developing world countries. Like us, they got sweet tooth. So buy a bag of sweets or a bar of chocolate or something like that and just leave it on the pillow when you leave in the morning. Sometimes that's the only gesture that you possibly can make um, because they've just said no to everything else that you've tried. But it's just that little thing sometimes that makes all the difference. We sometimes travel, um, and I know space is at a premium on motorcycle trips, but um, we can get little pins in Australia with kangaroos on them, really Australian tat um, tourist things. But if you take give those to kids, you know, pin them on their shirt, they're wrapped. They are wrapped. Mm-hmm. Mm, I yeah. mean, in an ideal world, if you were towing a trailer or had a semi-trailer, you'd take little little koalas that you can get that are a couple of inches high. Um, but clearly on a motorbike, that's out of the question. But those little pins, you know, you can have a, a matchbox size container, which will take a heap of those little pins and or something similar to give to the children, not really little children because they will you know, stab their fingers. You've got to think of safety. <laughs> think safety. But just, but just something. And, and we were in um, Tajikistan, I think, and uh, we were staying in a place and they were raising um, funds for towns that had been affected by a landslide right. just prior to us getting there. And the one thing they were really looking for was pencils, Um like colouring pencils or just um, school pencils, the old HB pencil we all used to have when we were kids. And, you know, if you can have a few things like that in the bottom of your pannier instead of perhaps the tie pliers, Brian, just saying, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, to, give, to give something to the children in the household goes a long way to um, making the parents feel good too. That's, that's such a, a, a nice thing, Shirley. Um, I, one time in Uganda, I stayed in the courtyard of a house. The family were, the house was just too small to, to you know, to invite me into. But they were really happy to put my tent up in, in their yard, which is just bare earth, with a, a big wall around the property. And the family were obviously struggling to put um, one of their children through school. And this one child was coming home each day and then teaching her siblings. And when I watch this happening, and this is the point that I'm making, is watch what's going on in the places that you're staying or somebody where somebody's helped you and, and see what you can do to adapt um, your finances, your ability and so on to help there. And I went to the market. And when I left, I left a pack of 30 notebooks and some ball pens. It cost me such a little amount of money, um, yeah. but for them. Yeah. And people yeah. will often accept a gift like that, but money, no way. Yeah, and that, that makes a huge difference for families like that because buying a notepad and pens would have been right down the bottom of their spending agenda. Mm-hmm. Yet it's something that, as you say, it might not have been four days' worth of food for you, but it would have been four days' worth of food for that family. Yep. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Shirley. I was, I was going to ask, that was something that Brandon popped into my head there as we were talking about this, was uh, is anyone taking pins and, and things like that? Because I, I know that um, it was done probably more, you know, in years gone by where, um, where stickers and pins and things like that weren't as common. And, and I'm kind of curious, 
does it still have a, a have that sort of effect? Like you, um, you know, if you take a bunch of stickers with you that say you're from, you know, Sam could take some from the UK, you know, some maybe something showing the, uh, I don't know, something famous in the UK. I was, was going to say the eye, but something something to do with probably with uh, with your royalty. Would would people be impressed with that still? I think they still. You are. go to yeah. You go to any bike show, not somewhere like Horizons Unlimited where it's all grown ups, but you go to any bike show where there's people bringing their kids in. The one thing the kids want when they come up to your stand is, do you have stickers? Uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, sure. okay. Yeah, you can't give enough stickers yeah. away. You now we used to carry pins. Yeah. Canadian flag pins and pencils. That was the big thing that we gave yeah. to kids. And the kids always appreciated it. I think the important thing, though, to keep in mind is that you don't just give it away willy-nilly to any kid that stands around no, the, no, no. the bike looking at you. That's yep. where people no. get into trouble. Yep. Um, yeah. uh, it turns into yeah, Vietnam, if you don't give something, the kids start throwing rocks at you. Yeah. yeah. This yeah. is a problem. And Vietnam's like that, Grant. If every kid you see says pencil pencil yeah. pencil mm-hmm. um but yeah when the when some the family's done something good for you it's a completely different issue isn't it yeah, yeah it i think we have to make sure we differentiate that yep so when the kids are older you right. give them cigarettes that's yeah. probably what they want <laughs> yeah i was just thinking about giving kids pencils probably is um uh, growing graffiti artists anyway <laughs> <laughs> oh i like the sound of that right but you know, um, most villages, no matter how small, has some kind of shop that sells some kind of provision. So if if a family's helped you out, be it with accommodation or um, you know helping you out if you've had a breakdown or whatever, and they won't accept cash, you can always go to the the little store. There'll be something that you've seen these people use that you can buy more of for them that they will be able to use after you've left. Oh, yeah. Good tip. Yep. But one of the stories that Michelle tells, and I'll tell it in her absence, um, I think it was Peru, either Peru or Ecuador. Um, they were invited into um, uh, local people's house and they were just treated like royalty. And um, they were in a culture where it was perfectly acceptable um, as a thank you to offer to take the family out for dinner. And it was just the right thing. Culture mm-hmm. changes. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, how many of you guys carry um, a notepad and a pen with you when you're traveling? Yeah, we do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just leaving um, a thank you note in your own language on the pillow in a room where you've been invited to stay, um, that can often have real um, gold. I've been told this um, by local people who other um, travelers coming through have, have done this with. And they've just written a nice little thank you note and they may not be able to read it. But one of the beauties of the English language is sooner or later, somebody will speak English. And I had this one guy show me this thank you letter from an Australian. um, And he was so proud that he had been left a thank you letter in Australian. Yes. (laughs) You couldn't read it though, could you? Yeah, I was going to say, could you decipher it? <laughs> it said bloody a few times. Well, it was Australian. <laughs> Definitely Australian. Well, that's some bloody hell, Sam. What are you saying? <laughs> that's some uh, that's some great ideas for um, for showing um, uh, gratitude. Anything else? Are we, are we wrapping this up here? 
I've got one final comment that I'd like to make is sometimes it's not possible to thank someone as you'd like. So learn from the experience, do the same for others yourself. Yeah, pay it forward. Pay it yep. forward, is that? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Do what you can. Because it's karma, isn't it? You, tr you treat people well on the road, you'll have a better experience on the road and people coming behind you will have a better experience because that country has you as their, as their example. Does that make sense? A, yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We get it. Yeah. It's, you know, developed countries, in my mind, are, are changing a lot with our communications, et cetera. I mean, we have cell phones. Everybody's got a cell phone now. And we talked about the, you know, uh, phones at the side of the road disappearing in developed countries. And, and that, that thing of stopping to help somebody at the side of the road, do you guys think that that is, in, in your own country, do you think that is still something that is... Um, is more common than not. You see someone broke down that people stop or do you think that people just keep driving by? People just keep driving well, by. We always do if it's a motor. Yeah, I guess that's a rule people drive by, but we always stop if it's a bike. Yeah, so do I. Mm -hmm. yeah, if I see a car I don't that know why somebody that looks like they're in trouble, I'll stop just to see, you know, how are you doing? I mean, I stopped to um, a guy with broken down bike just a little while ago here on the freeway right to where I live. And uh, he said, no, it's okay. I'm fine. You know, my dad's coming to get me. And, you know, this is my brother's bike and it's a piece of shit. <laughs> it's quite the story. You know, I ended up talking to him for a little while. His, his brother had trashed the bike and trashed it and flipped it and crashed it and gifted it to him. And I, would, I took one look at it and went, oh, my Lord, you're riding this thing? You should, this thing should not be on the road. You know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> pile of junk and here he is out in the freeway in jeans and a t-shirt yeah. for me anyway, it depends on um, where yeah, it is you stop yeah if, if i possibly can and it's a motorcycle i will absolutely stop yeah yeah, I do as well for motorcycles all the time, but but for for cars, I will depending on where it is. If it's in more of a remote place where I can see they might have trouble getting help or something like that, then I will stop. But generally, if if it's a busier road, I hate to say it, but I, I know I tend to figure they're going to be fine. You know that they're they've got some sort of communications. But but I'll tell you, I just stopped not too long ago, just a few weeks back. I stopped for a motorcyclist not far down the road here. I, I was going the opposite direction. I, I saw him on the side of the road, and then I saw the the liquid underneath. I could see that he had some. Cool uh, underneath his bike. So I turn around and I had to do the whole turn around and wait for some vehicles and everything. I turn around and I pull up and I, I said to him, uh, are you okay? And he's on his cell phone. And I said, uh, do you need help? And he says, nope, fine. Turns his back to me and goes back to his cell phone. It was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, well, that's there, not the norm. There's always some of those. Yeah. I stopped for a guy not so, um, well, actually it is quite a while back because I haven't done that much riding um, recently. Um, I stopped for a guy and he was looking um, pretty upset and I pulled in and he said, yeah, thanks very much for stopping. Um, 14 motorcyclists have been past me and nobody stopped and um, I've just dropped my cell phone and broken it. So I've got no way of getting in touch with anybody. May I borrow yours? Yeah, oh, wow. of course you can. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. my and my experience has been the same. Like I'll I'll pull over and have a couple of bikes stop while I'm pulled over. I mean, not every time, but I've had this happen where you pull over and the two bikes have stopped, and it's like I got to move again because everybody keeps thinking that I need help, you know, and I, and I'm just fiddling with something. So and that's great. Yeah, I had an instance in the UK where a couple of years back where um, I broke down on the motorway, and you know, I I suppose I'd ridden about a hundred miles. And all of a sudden, um, my bike conked out and I was in the outside lane. So fortunately, I had enough speed going to get across to the, the hard shoulder. 
Um, when I got there, I was pressing the starter button. The engine was turning over, but nothing was happening at all. And I'm I'm not the world's most um, proficient mechanic. I could do a little bit. So I'm just walking around the bike thinking, well, you know, what's what? And I realized that actually the fuel pipe to the carburetors um, had come off. Um, and they just never do that. So somebody had obviously fiddled with the bike and they'd st- they'd pinched some petrol. So somebody had come up to my bike and they'd filled a, a little jerry can or something and not put the tube back on again properly. Um, I can do about 450 miles on my bike so with the f- fuel tank that I've got. So I, I know something like that had happened. And um, I'd only been there for five minutes when four motorcyclists pulled over straight onto the hard shoulders and, yeah, sorted me out straight away, shared some fuel, and off they went again. Um, smiles all around. What yeah. a good feeling that was. Yeah, yeah. Makes all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about packing for a few minutes. Um, Haven't we talked about this before? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but isn't it the the number one thing that you hear people talk about is overpacking? And, and it, you know what's funny about overpacking? I, I, w- I was looking, you know, doing a little research in, into overpacking, and I found this thing on Vox.com, and this is from January of 2020. Somebody did an article about overpacking, and it wasn't to do with motorcycling. But I, I found some of the stuff interesting. Like there was, there's this one point where it says that this um, person, Lara Fielding, uh, who's a clinical psychologist and the author of a book called Mastering Adulthood. Anyway, the, the, um, they had told this person who wrote the article that stress levels increase because when, when we're not in our comfort zone, and because we're surrounded by uncomfortable, supposedly un- uncomfortable, different people, this is why we feel stressed when we're traveling. And this is why when we have those experiences, we want to pack more so that we're more prepared to cover the stress. Does does that make sense to you guys? Totally. I'll go with any excuse, really. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I think if Berger was in the conversation, she'd say, no, just pack a few Twix bars. Well, you know, it's funny because one of the other things this article talked about women, it said that um, a popular stereotype, travel stereotype is that women tend to pack more than men, which is apparently according to Fielding, was an old cliche, um, probably originating over a century ago because uh, women yeah. wore more elaborate outfits. Uh, they're also car- uh, used to uh, carrying things in some sort of bag and and women's clothing have smaller or used to have inadequate pockets. And, and I know much of that has changed now, but I guess it takes a, a while. Or what they're saying is it takes a while for the stereotypes to dissipate. Um, but, well, um, I, but Jim, I want, I want to help that because Birgit packs a darn sight less than I do. I mean, it does help that she's only about five foot, so her clothes are smaller and she wears smaller undies than I do. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Birgit does pack a darn sight less than I do. That she's has got to be one of in layers. the lamest things I've ever heard. You're saying she packs better because her clothes are smaller. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And it's logic, isn't it? Come on, let's get some physics in the conversation. <laughs> so what we're saying now is only small travel on motorbikes. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Or the, the smaller people could have smaller panniers. No, let's not go there. No, and, let's not go there. Gosh. Hey, Jesus. anyway, one of the other interesting things I read in this article is telling you about is, uh, according to this, this person's point of view, how a traveler chooses to pack ultimately comes down to their past travel experiences. Uh, a person's behavior is influenced consciously, influenced consciously or unconsciously by what they've encountered before. And uh, most people are aiming to cover their butts when they pack. And that's really true when it comes to motorcycling, isn't it? Except that a lot of people, I think most everybody who, who even goes out and, and does any kind of trip and overpacks tends to overpack again. Yeah, I think well, it we doesn't have matter a how experienced you are. 
you're you're always going to take too much. I mean, you know, that's kind of a. You know, I've been traveling for mm, you won't discuss how long, and I still have to really, really struggle to make sure I don't take stuff I don't need. You know, I just did a three day trip up up country here on the DRZ, um, which has pretty pretty minimal accommodation for luggage, and yep, got it all in, but. I had to say, no, I don't need that. I do not need that. No, I don't need that. Nope, don't need that. I know I want it, but no, I don't need it. A number of times. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's human nature to take everything you could possibly need as opposed to what you absolutely will need. I might need that. Mm-hmm. That could be important. So you want to take it. But, but, but it's, it's sort of comfort zone, isn't it? It's because, yes, absolutely. yeah, you don't want to be uncomfortable. You want to make sure that you've got what you need and be independent. Yes. Yeah. And no, you can't buy anything out there. There are no stores. There's nobody out there. You are on your own. Right. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, that, that, that's really, it's not the question that we're, we're, that we're talking about. I mean, that this leads into it. What we're talking about here with this is um, ideas for, better packing. So how can we fit more stuff into a smaller space and get away with it? So in other words, like we're talking about folding, stuffing, or rolling, you know what I mean when you talk about mm-hmm. a sleeping bag or, or, or something else. So how about that? How about some tips? What do you, what do you guys do to make space in your pantry? There's a company in, in the UK that has produced some um, very useful bits of equipment and they strap on underneath your panniers and basically what it is, it's a bit like a little stepladder and it wedges underneath your panniers on either side so that you can climb on top of your panniers and your luggage and just jump on it until it, you close the lid. Wow, what a Without great idea. Over. Oh, shall, we, shall we put a link in the show notes for that one? one? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Quick, I'm just going to set the company this. up. <laughs> Um, well, the main thing that I've always done for packing is I use stuff sacks. Everything goes in a stuff sack. You know, the purple stuff sack is the toilet paper. The the blue stuff sack is Grant's clothing. The, I think it's Susan's ends up being gray, and that's her clothing. And, you know, people get fussy about folding stuff, and they're very careful and try to make it tidy. Nah, it fits in a stuff sack and you scrunch it in wherever it fits. And the biggest secret with stuff sacks is the stuff sack should be too big for the stuff you're putting in it. That way, it can be squished into any shape necessary to fit the hole that's available as opposed to having to fit like a sausage. You put a bunch of sausages in there and it's very inefficient. But if they're all squishable and flat and we change shape, then they work really well. You know, I know a guy who uses... Um, uh, what do you call them? They're hard-sided, zipper-topped containers of various sizes and shapes to put all his stuff in. And everything is in one of these things. Man, the amount of stuff he can get into his saddlebags is almost nothing because the cases that he's using take up a third of the space. Mm-hmm. You know, squishable stuff sacks that weigh nothing and can even be used as repair for patching up your clothing, your tent, or whatever. Um, works, works a treat for me. Yeah, when when we first started travelling, um, and we got um, a BMW uh, panniers, which are Touratech panniers, and uh, they said, "Oh, you want you need you need the pannier liners." We got these pannier liners, and they were that damn thick. They took up so much room. I threw them out straight away. I think we used them once, and, and they, they were just too big to go in the panniers. And we just put stuff in. 
our penny is uh, as I'm just folded up and find space and put it in there. And I have a calico bag which I'll put a spare pair of shoes in to keep them separate from the the clothes and um, a calico bag for jocks and socks. Everything else just in the pannier. We've tried everything from remember we used to try those roll bags that take the air out and all that sort of stuff um, to try and uh, squeeze more in. You don't need to do that. You just. Work. Um, yeah, too much work. I so, agree. You, you, Brian, you're putting everything just loose in the pannier always? Yeah. No, we have pannier bags We've got, now, we've got really, really lightweight pannier bags now. But um, when you stop, you can just pull that bag out and take it. But inside that bag, everything's loose. Right. So, one bag Ooh. in there. Yeah. One bag. One bag for her, one bag for me, and one, one bag for the bike. One thing I know is that when you wash your clothes, and then fold them nicely because they've just come off the line, they fit into the pannier much easier than when you just scrunch and push to try and get them into the little holes and gaps that have um, that have occurred. So the first day of your trip, your pannier looks fantastic, and that is the last time it will look <laughs> yep. fantastic until the first day of your next trip. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. But we, we make a point of folding clothes and you know putting them into the stuff sacks tidy, lay them in flat, yeah. round, into whatever shape. And then if you need to, you can adjust their shape to fit the appropriate space that's available. Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. But if you just fill them up tight, I mean, what we use now on the 1200 GS is we do have the Touratech bag liners, but they're just um, cordura, single layer cordura and not very bulky. Yeah. yeah. But we still same, put, same. yeah, we still put all our uh, stuff sacks in, into those just because it's so much easier. You know, like it, it, the, the classic example is the toilet paper roll. Open the saddlebag, open the lid, right, there's the purple bag, grab the string, pull, and off into the bushes. It's easy. Whereas if you've got to dig through a bunch of loose clothing, by the time you try and put everything back, it's even worse and it's harder and it takes longer than just stuffing a stuff sack back in. Mm-hmm. It's just so much easier. I'm a cheapskate. Yeah. You don't use toilet I paper? Stuff sacks. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to use plastic bags, although they're um, clear plastic bags and then you can see exactly what you've got inside. But of course, plastic bags are um, slowly decreasing, thankfully. So um, I'm going to have to rethink. But perhaps somebody can produce some of these stuff sacks in clear so that... Um, I can see easily what's inside. Um, I mean, we, I'm, I'm joking. We do use stuff sacks. Um, but I do also use some plastic tubs. The plastic tubs are for carrying around spares in so that they don't get squashed or mangled in, in the bottom of the panniers. But everything else is in soft bags and um, goes in on top of that. I mean, I know people like Grant was describing who, you know, carry everything in solid containers. And the problem with that is as you use things, you're carrying around an awful lot of fresh air. Um, and why would you want to do that in, in your panniers? Yeah, just too much. It's too hard. Um, on Sam's comment um, about the plastic bags, on the sustainability point of view, that purple toilet paper bag, we took that with us in 1987 and we're still using it. That's pretty eco-friendly. That's pretty good. You know those um, um, uh, battery jumpers, um, jumper leads you get and with a lithium-ion battery um, that you put in? A lot of people are carrying those nowadays. They, you've got to be very careful you don't put too much weight or, or pressure on those because they do have a tendency to short and burst. I've had a couple 
that have um, uh, you know I've, I've shoved them in the top box and uh, haven't been too careful with them, and um, they've they've started to expand and things like that. Oh, that's so, a good one. So, yeah, is, Brian, is that with the, are the wires on that one permanently uh, mounted to the battery? No, 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 no. It's one of those battery packs, you know, which where you can jumpstart your bike if you get a flat battery, right? Those things, um, and some, and people can use it to charge phones or, or all sorts of things. But um, I've had two now that have um, expanded and that they they're quite dangerous. You've got to put them in a bucket of water to to stop the process. Uh, but uh, they can cause fires and all sorts of things. So I'd be careful where you put them. I wouldn't be pushing them into a pannier spot. No, my, my yeah, question is, Brian, that uh, you know, this pan, this um, battery pack that you're talking about, like the one I have has the, has the, the leads come, they plug into it and you can unplug them. So the leads are not connected to the battery. Are you talking about one that's with the leads connected to the battery? No. Or are you talking about the battery pack itself? No, 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 I, no, I'm talking about the battery pack itself. And sometimes they come in a Ziploc bag, the whole bit. Those ones. Oh, okay. yeah, we, yeah. yeah, we've had two. And do we, that. we read somewhere that someone had one that actually caught fire. Yeah. We oh, just wow. had them expand. Yeah. That's really interesting. But I mean, we have one as well. Um, but just because of the weight of the thing, I've always put it in one of the plastic tubs down in the bottom of um, the pannier um, because they're quite heavy. Um, but it never occurred to me about the fire risk and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I suppose yeah. I've probably got away with it because I have had it in a plastic tub. Yeah, sure, don't put it beside your. Yeah, well, that's 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 the point. A lot of people will pull, put them on the bottom because they are heavy, and you don't use them often, so they keep them in the bottom of the pannier, mm. and everything goes on top of them. Right. Oh well, my guardian angel's with me. Brian, you said you put them in water to stop them from from breaking down. Uh, yeah, I read somewhere that, that we had one expand and you know, it just kept expanding, expanding. And I read that if you let it go, it could burst into flames. The best way to um, uh, stop its process was to uh, get a bucket of water and just chuck it in the bucket of water and leave it there. And then get rid of it. And then throw it out. Oh, yeah, okay. That's right. Well, problem solved there. Just just put some water in the bottom of your pannier and put it in the bottom. <laughs> Perfect solution. Isn't it? You're good at that. So impressed. Oh. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I've been seeing quite a lot of um, adverts on social media recently for suction packing bags. And somebody mentioned it um, earlier on in the conversation. And um, do you know, there are even vacuum pumps that you can get now to suck all of the air out of them. I'm afraid I'm too cheapskate for that. I'd rather just sit on the bag and then close it. Yeah, yeah, not right. just too cheap. I'm I'm just way too lazy. There is no way I'm going to try and even consider doing that. Some of that, if I need to pack with one of those things in order to get all my stuff in there, I'm packing really badly. Yep. Yeah, if you, exactly. I was going to say, if no, you have to do that, imagine um, getting checked at the border and and they pull all your stuff out and hang on, I'm going to be you oh. know an hour and a half while I suck my luggage down. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Not a waste of time. I mean, those things are great for somebody who's going to Hawaii for a vacation. Yeah, and you know, they're taking way too much stuff, and this is really cool, so they buy it. It's one of those. Oh, it exists, <laughs> and it's for what I'm doing. Therefore, I must have it. It's important yeah. that I have it. This is an important thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called a sucker job. You know, and that's those yeah, are the people yeah. that have to be very careful. And I know that none of us are those people that like gadgets. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, getting sucked into buying buying a bunch of gadgets for stuff that, um, like you said, Grant, after a while, you get to the point where just throw it in a stuff sack. It's good enough, you know? It's yeah. um, 
you know, you, you can get caught up. And by the way, you, you were talking about stuffing, folding, or rolling. I, I, there's no doubt in my mind that rolling is the absolute best way to make something minimal size if you want to go through the work. You stuff it, it, it tends to go to the size of the stuff sack. It, you know, they, they, te- they tell you, and I think we've talked about this before, Stuff they tell you to stuff um, things like um, sleeping bags and tents now. It's fine, you can do it, um, but rolling it will definitely make a tighter pack. Just look at a, at a tarp or something like that when you buy it, when it's new. You know, when you, when you open one of those, it's rolled up so small and you never, ever get it down that small again. Well, it's rolled Rolling without a bunch work. of air. Although I use a compression sack now for my sleeping bag. And mm-hmm. this trip I just went on, I knew it was going to be really cold. So I've got a, a five-degree bag and a zero-C bag. And I sleep really cold, like I'm an icicle. Um, so I took both of them. And mm-hmm. it was wonderful. But I got both of them into one sleeping bag stuff sack. But man, was it solid, tight. Just, oh, that's just four straps on it. Yeah, you got to be careful on doing that. It'll take your head off if it lets go. I'm sure it would have. <laughs> but yeah, it was wonderful. But those compression stuff sacks are amazing. Yeah, they are. We, use, we both use those as well. Uh, makes a huge difference. Shirley's got a good way of um, making space in the pennies. Yeah, I leave half my clothes behind on a on a hotel bed. Yeah, she left them. <laughs> yeah. She had she had, she left them the bra and a couple of bras. So she had to freewheel for a couple of days. There. Don't stop, <laughs> <laughs> Brian. Some stuff Brian, just doesn't need to be word. said. <laughs> well, Shirley thinks that. Particularly, uh, yeah. Oh God. And, and uh, it was I actually. A Horizons Unlimited T-shirt. So there's a housekeeper oh. in a hotel in Sofia who's wearing a Horizons Unlimited T-shirt. Nice. Yeah. Prize possession. That. Yeah. Double check. Don't leave. Always yeah. well, behind. I had uh, a white calico bag that was my dirty clothes bag, and it was on a white by damn, I've done such a good job packing my pennier today. There's <laughs> so much room in it. It was <laughs> extraordinary. And we got to the next place and I thought, I'll just do my dirty washing. And I opened the bag and thought, oh, that'd be why. Because <laughs> the yeah. dirty clothes bag's mm. not there. Yeah, I know. Moment. I was thinking that exact thing when you were talking about that, thinking, and I'll bet you there was a comment coming up here about how easy it was to pack and how good a job you did. <laughs> Because I've done that. <laughs> if it's too easy to pack, there's something missing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and the, the keys of packing, I mean, always going to come back to, do I really need it, as Grant said, mm-hmm. but also the two uses rule. Um, if something has two uses, then there's a very good chance that you do need it because it's um, it's a very versatile piece of equipment. Although the most extreme I've come across is that guy I met who um, used his frying pan as both a cooking pan and as his side stand puck when it was in soggy yeah. ground. Brilliant. I don't know about that. Hmm. <laughs> what about underwear, Sam? Do you have two uses for that? Oh, stop, Jim. Can we have this conversation sort of- in private, please? <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that um, we try and do is um, always have one bag that we only pack half full. So, for example, the roll bag on the back of the bike. And if you can make sure that you've got it only half full, then it gives you the flexibility to buy that souvenir before you then post it home. Or it gives you some space to slot in um, your food shopping and those sorts of things. But it's just that little bit of expandable space. Um, and the roll top bags like Ortley bags and things like that are just brilliant for doing that. But yeah, never be tempted to fill that bag for full. 
Yeah, and one of our floating bags. Space for souvenirs. Yes, absolutely critical. We've one of our floating bags is actually a. Is and uh, they're the same. You know, they're expanding so that we can um, we can buy things, buy food, anything you want. Was that Grant? Yeah, and one of our clothing bags is actually a small day pack that you know really light nylon, but it's a day pack. So we just dump the clothing out, stuff it in the pannier, or you know basically leave it in the hotel usually, and we go do our shopping with that. That works fine. Double duty mm-hmm. does the job. Aren't some liners like that? Some of the pannier liners. <laughs> I thought I'd seen be. some with straps, like yeah. shoulder straps on them. Oh, yeah. I've got one on, from my dirt bike that's got, uh, it's a roll bag, not a roll, it's a top closing. Being that if you're in the middle of nowhere and your bike breaks down, you've got a backpack to get yourself out. Mm-hmm. I really like those top rolling bags. They can so much yep. easier to squash down and easier access to what's inside. And if I'm heading into town to do some shopping or something like that, then I'll quite often take one with me and my helmet and my bike jacket will go in it and I can be pottering around even though it's baking hot and I'm feeling comfortable. Yep. Any other tips? Any, any other ideas for um, getting more into less? Take less. Buy bigger panniers. I saw saw a picture of a guy who had the ultimate setup. He had 1200 GS with the usual full set of luggage, and he bought two more saddlebags and mounted them on top of the other, the original saddlebags, and he bought another top box and mounted that on top of the top box. Okay, well, um, let's let's do our plugs. For plugs, I'm going to start with you, Shirley. What do you have? Uh, yeah, sorry, Jim. It's just, no, sorry. <laughs> well, we're zipping right through the plugs already. Brian, have you got something? <laughs> uh, look, I'm just going to do a shout out to all those people who are riding for that wall to wall remembrance ride that um, we have every year. Um, we haven't been able to run it this year because there's lots of states in Australia that are in lockdown. So there's local guys I know from Perth who have. Um, uh, transported their bikes to Darwin and are now riding down through Northern Territory and down into South Australia and heading home to Perth um, just to remember fallen mates. And uh, it's, it's great that they are able to do their own little thing, but we couldn't gather this year. Uh, the South Australian boys are going for a little ride, as are the Queensland um, boys and girls up there as well. So uh, just, just a little shout-out to people who are still commemorating um, despite the the difficulties of COVID-19 and still getting out there and going for a ride. So thanks to all. Okay. Sam, what do you have? Uh, I've got a twofold plug, if I may. Um, I'm always impressed with people who volunteer their time to make exciting and fun things for happen. And one of the things that I really like about other than the joshing that happens on um, Facebook sites, for example, is that they're really rarely down on people who genuinely want advice on tires and oils and mods and things like that. I see so much encouraging going on and I can only be impressed. And it's such a positive thing. And being a moderator allows us um, such great entertainment and, and encouragement. And it really is a time-consuming thing. So I just want to say thanks very much to all of the moderators who volunteer their time um, to do this sort of thing. And the second part of my plug is also to all of those people who volunteer their time to support the char- charities and fundraising and efforts. Um, you all make the world a much better place to be. So um, yeah, thank you very much. Cheers. 
Oh, very nice. Yeah, that is so true. Um, Grant, what do you have? I don't have an awful lot this time. Um, we've had to cancel all of our events in North America, which has been very depressing. However, due to COVID, it's the smart thing to do. We want to make sure that everybody's safe, and that's our number one priority. So we've said, nope, we don't think we can run any events in North America safely. We are running Germany and France, which are this coming weekend, which will be after this has aired. That's too late. South Africa is happening in December, we think. We're really not sure. So keep an eye on the website for announcements if you're interested in that area. And other than that, um, Sam has brought up a very good point. I would like to thank all the HU moderators, particularly because we've got a number of them that work really hard, both on the website and on Facebook, and they do an amazing job. I'm so glad I've got them to help out because they do most of the work. If I had to do it all... I just close it all down. Forget it. I couldn't do it. It's too much. Um, so, yes, I really fully understand just how much work it is, um, and not just for us, but for all the various sites and everything else out there. Um, they deserve a lot more credit than they get. And they, you know, people who say bad things about them and about them being draconian and whatever else, hey, you have no idea how hard it is to do this and do it well. So, I agree. Kudos to a lot of them. Um, and finally, since it's coming into winter, thing that some people, especially those in lockdown, can think of is, well, nothing, because what do I do? I'm bored out of my mind. If you haven't watched the Achievable Dream video series, why not ask yourself, you're listening to this show, you're thinking about traveling, you want to go somewhere, and you haven't seen the Achievable Dream video series? Well, go to vimeo.com slash Horizons Unlimited, check it out. And you'll be very glad you did. Okay, and and Michelle is not here, as you've you've definitely noticed by now. And I mentioned at the start of the show, next month, I guess we'll get her story and find out um, just how her adventure went. And maybe she'll tell us what happened. Did she fall asleep? Was she... Doing something else, riding. I, well, she would be riding at two in the morning. I don't know. We'll, we'll get that next month. Not in Pakistan. She doesn't ride at night. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Well, thanks. <laughs> thanks very much, everyone. Great show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, everybody. Bye. Thanks everybody for listening. Bye, Bye. Bye guys. See y'all. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also publish their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get e-books at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Michelle Lampfair is a moto traveler that also has a couple of great moto travel books, The Butterfly Route and Tips for traveling overland in Latin America. Both of those titles available on Amazon. As well, she has a motel for us motorcyclists and anyone else called the Chalet Motel. You can find out more about that at chaletmotelcuster.com. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. 
Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here. You can make comments on the show notes. AdventureRiderRadio.com. Oh, 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 o